0: Bible Bitches, a theological feminist podcast at the intersection of religion and culture. And I'm here with the one Sarah Hoff, an agnostic from L.A. Yes, and I am here
1: with Laura Barclay,
0: who is a Baptist minister and... um therapist living in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm excited because we are both in Louisville, Kentucky, currently at the Define American Summit, and we are here with a very special guest today, Jose Antonio Vargas. Welcome to the show. Thank you for
1: having
2: me. I love, I mean, that's the best name.
0: (laughs) Bible (laughs) Bitches. And now that you're on our show, you're an honorary Bible bitch. Yeah. How How privileged do you feel right now?
2: (laughs) Amazing. Yes. I have lots of questions, though.
0: Okay, great. Yes. Oh, questions. Tell. So, because,
2: I mean, you know, I mean, when people think Bible, I don't necessarily think bitches. You know what I mean? Like it, it seems a little bit, that's why I think it's exciting, because it seems like an oxymoron. Like, when I think Bible, I think formal. like right. Like, you know, doctrine. When I hear the word bitches, as as a man, I'm like, am I supposed to be using that word?
0: I yeah. Guess, I guess I can, but I yeah. Can. Yeah. You can you can totally use it. Yes, it's, it's our actual name. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if this is going to be like turned around on us because Jose Antonio Vargas is a Pulitzer Prize oh, winning course. journalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I just asked lots of questions,
2: and I was, was watching. You know, when I, when I when I when I fly, I literally just listened to the same James Baldwin Toni Morrison interviews over and over again, and I just I rediscovered this interview when when Baldwin says, um, "We live in a society that loves answers, but." loads of questions mm.
0: and you're really good at questions i kind of think i live in questions you're really fucking good at questions so uh speaking of questions jose can you tell us a little bit about yourself yes
2: so um okay i'll do this really really quick so i was born in the philippines and then my mother sent me to america when i was 12 um to live with her parents my grandparents both of whom were natural u.s citizens and then when i was 16 i found out that Um, I'm here illegally, and that I was smuggled to be here illegally. I didn't think the guy that I was introduced to when I was 12 was a smuggler, because I thought he was my uncle, but he's not an uncle. And that my grandparents paid $4,500 to get me here illegally because they couldn't do it in any legal way. There was no legal way to do it. So then I was 16. This was in 1997. So I was kind of confused because I, I knew that I was gay. I was already... I think I was pretty sure that I was gay. I think it was Matt Damon. And I'm not really even a Matt Damon fan, but I was watching The like, Good Will Hunting. Mm-hmm. And he had this one scene. And I remember I was on a date with Karen Jensen <laughs> in the theater. And I went to the bathroom because I was like, why am I being turned on by Matt Damon? <laughs> I was so I was like, what's happening? And, you know, Karen Jensen was like, ah, oh, she had like, you know. Big um, old booby. And I'm it was like coconuts, like all coconuts. Coconut. <laughs> and like big coconuts. And I was like, Why am I not turned on by Karen Jensen and I was turned on by Matt Damon, who I didn't really think was that attractive. So then I found that I was gay and then I found that I was also here illegally, so I was this illegal faggot person in my head. And then shortly after that, the salvation came when um, my English teacher said I asked too many annoying questions and I should do journalism. So then I became a journalist just so I can write stories yeah. and so that my name could exist on a piece of paper that I didn't have on a green card or a passport. Oh. So I did that for like 14 years. And then eight years ago, uh, when one of the IDs that I got so I can have a career, because you know, you're know you undocumented, meaning your life is defined by documents you don't have. So I had one, a driver's license from the state of Oregon that I wasn't supposed to have. It was about to expire, so I had to make a decision, do I stay or do I leave? So clearly I stayed. And part of staying was creating an organization called Define American, in which we ask people, how do you define American? And our goal is, how do we change the narrative on immigration one story at a time, right? So my story is just one story. And there's an entire narrative. I would argue that we're living in a very anti-immigrant narrative system, uh, so strong that elected a president So strong that we're seeing the rise of white nationalism all throughout Europe. So strong that this idea of who's the foreigner, who's the other, do these people have a right to come to our countries and they don't really want to be there, they're taken away from the country, all of that. So for me, policies and politics are not enough. Like If we're going to actually change people's perspectives, we have to do it through stories. So that's where my work
1: lives yeah that's a pretty short did i do that short perfect okay.
0: yeah Wait,
1: i mean it's fascinating okay. yeah oh. <laughs> i mean it is yeah um but we you know we also i know we sent these quotes to you earlier but you had tweeted out some quotes um a while back one was i am an atheist i was catholic oh. by colonization when i was detained with boys who were ages 7 through 13 i thought whoever god was god did not intend this can you talk a little bit more about that like when were you detained um, and yeah. then like you say catholic by colonization were you were you like culturally exposed to
2: It wasn't even you know so 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 the Philippines the the, the quick explanation is the Philippines was under spanish rule for 300 years and then the americans took over for 50 years and then they both left and were still confused, mm. <laughs> right? So 30 years under the Spanish convent and 50 years under American Hollywood. And then they both left. They were like, what do we do? Yeah. So growing up in the Philippines, I was a Catholic just by birth, right? Like I, 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 I grew up in a very, you know, um, a household where I had to get baptized. I was confirmed. I went to a Catholic school, um, Actually, I remember when I was in school, I, you know, because I had a loud voice, so I was always the one that read um, parables in front of the class. Um, But it's interesting, I never really, I felt like when I was doing that, we never really interrogated what we were reading. We just, it was given to us, right? And were just Catholics. It was, and I and I grew up in a culture in which like ninety five percent of the people were Catholic, mm-hmm. a very homogeneous, very kind of like everybody was Filipino you know, and everybody was Catholic. There was no question about it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I said that. So, but I never really got to um, ask what being a Catholic meant outside of we do the pageants. Mm-hmm. Um, right like in the Philippines which is the only predominantly Catholic country in all of Asia like Christmas is like a four month affair like Christmas starts in September really I come from a country I don't know if you've heard about this but like during Easter they actually nail people to the cross have you seen this like nailed them why why would they do that actually I remember when I was growing up in the province I think I actually witnessed one of them Because it's kind of dependence thing. So some, like, uh, you know, like, this person who pretends like he's Jesus, you know, in the middle of the down square, Mm -hmm. carrying the wooden cross, and then he he gets nailed and left
1: there. Is it something that, like... Who decides who does that? Like is it volunteer?
2: I I think actually it was about this thing about being sinners and the people who are sinners in the community.
1: Something like that. So it's it's meant to be a punishment for that
0: person.
2: That's but 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 it's a performance. It's part of this Mm -hmm. kind of and I remember, you know, this is in the province and not at all in like the the you know, urban area or whatever. So but this was like a thing, right? It was like a thing where everybody was watching this happen. And again, I mean, we never questioned it. So we were born guilty. Like we. So for me, it was this kind of indoctrination to what this was. And it wasn't until, of course, I was older that I was like, well, wait so you know, a second, why are we Catholic? What, does Catholic? what does Catholicism mean? And you know what it was for me? It was Pedro Almodovar, the filmmaker, the Spanish filmmaker,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, who, you know, probably one of the best filmmakers. Filmmakers Alive, and um, and these films are very subversive, and they're always, like, questioning Spanish Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So that got me like, hey, what, what does this mean? So that thing that I tweeted, I was detained um, in 2014 um, when I was in South Texas, and I, I didn't know that in, in the border in Texas, when you fly... Um, at the airport, there's Border Patrol agents next to the TSA agents. And so after I came out as undocumented, we're doing this, by the way, right now on a national coming out day. So I came out as undocumented, which means that I'm done lying about my status. So at, at, at the TSA, at the airport, when they asked me, Are you here illegally, the Border Patrol agent, I said, Yes, I am. So they arrested me, they detained me. This was 2014, when people didn't really care because you know people only cared about immigration when Trump became president <laughs> back then when obama was deporting hundreds of thousands of people mm. nobody really cared mm-hmm. so i got detained and i was there for 8 hours and for someone who has been running my, i've been running my entire life so f- to put me in in a one place for 8 hours with no computer or no cell phone <laughs> meaning all i had to do was be present sounds like hell for me And not be, like, you know, I'm usually in the reporter mode or I'm asking people, I'm observing or whatever, right? I was, like, by myself and kind of just, you know, all up in my head. And that was when, you know, when I was writing my book, I really struggled to talk about God because I was going to try to include this whole passage about what happened when I was detained and what I witnessed and being with these kids and how I was questioning how what allowed that to happen. But then I just felt so... It's almost as if I felt like I was using God. I was being exploitative. So I ended up taking it out. Ah. Because I feel like religion is a very... Um, it's a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people should be allowed to go through their own journey. And maybe I'm getting... Maybe it's just I'm getting older. I feel like the older I get... The more I have to hold on to something bigger than what's here, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. like
2: I have to. I'm trying to. What I see and what's and what I see is not enough, right? Like I need to come up with another way to explain why things are the way that they are,
1: mm-hmm.
2: just so just so I could survive. Right, like yeah. I had to know that. I had I had to know when I was sitting in that jail cell that no God would intend for this to happen, to lock a bunch of kids up just because they cross some border.
1: Some right? imaginary line. Right? And yeah. so, like,
2: I had to believe that, because what else would I, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So there was some, there's some higher power,
1: whatever Yeah, well, that is. I mean, and, and just for the element of hope, right? If this is all we have, is if this is all we see, and we're just seeing people be garbage, mm-hmm. you know, act like bad people. Um, then it really, I think it really, like, dismantles the idea of hope. Like, can us as human beings be better without hope in something other than? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and I would want to know from that, too, like, where do you center your hope? You, you said... Um, Also that your first experience with faith was your grandfather kicking you out of the house because you were gay. And so you had to find a different faith, right? This kind of form of survival. And you found it in words like James Baldwin and in other people's actions. So how do like is that kind of how you construct your hope and what did that look like?
2: Well, I mean actually I mean I mean there's two there's two concepts that I'm really thinking a lot about. One is the difference between being an ally and being a witness. Mm -hmm. Right? And then the difference between Having hope and actually
1: being hope. Like being hope for other people or being hopeful? See, I'm not sure. Being a hope,
2: being hopeful also seems, it, it seems like allyship. It seems like, you know, I like something on Facebook. I retweeted something. I gave $10 or $20. Maybe I created a poster and I protested it seems spectatorial. Mm. It doesn't seem... Like as engaged? As engaged. But engaged enough where it's like, okay, I've done my thing. I'm Mm -hmm. woke now. You know, Mm -hmm. I resisted, right? And I'm not sure this... I'm not sure that in this very dangerous time that we're living in, which historically, I'm not sure there's a parallel either. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if having hope and being an ally is enough.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. that I think we have to really challenge ourselves to bear witness to people which means that we're a part of something like you're bearing witness to someone's experience Mm -hmm. therefore you're risking something and by risking something you're actually being an instrument of hope it's not enough that we rely on agencies I think we have to be an agency
1: does that make sense? It, yeah, it really does. Okay. Um, so, by the way,
2: I'm still kind of playing with this in my head. Like, I haven't. I'm actually. I. This is why I hate writing.
1: <laughs>
2: it's <laughs> ironic because that's what I do. It's literally
0: I, your Twitter, right? It's Hosea's writing. <laughs> yeah, no, but I hate
2: writing because I have to really. did yeah. I have to. I have to be coherent. Mm-hmm. I have to like. I started realizing after I finished my book, after I wrote the, the book that like writing is actually the most. Coherent I feel about myself. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to be coherent.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it
2: is. I mean it really so It's actually go like, okay, I really think this. Do I really think this? And I'm one of those people mm-hmm. that's like, ooh, is there a comma or a semicolon or yeah. a, you know, or an yeah. dash there? Mm-hmm. Can I complicate this even more? <laughs> you know? Yeah,
1: because you want to get it like precise so that if you come at it from a different angle, you don't come at it and be like, oh, I missed this element of it and now I don't know if I agree with what I just said. <laughs> so I did in a way, on a way too late, like, the faith that I had to find is, you know,
2: I was just in um, North Carolina, which is a very dangerous place for immigrants, even mm-hmm. immigrants, even allies of immigrants. So I just heard a story about um, a lawyer, an immigration lawyer, that is being detained right now because she was harboring an undocumented person. She was yeah. had a client who was a DACA recipient and she basically got in trouble for what he ended up doing but, but what he did got her in trouble and mm-hmm. now she's locked up in North Carolina. I just heard about this. It's not public yet so I'm not giving you more specifics. Mm-hmm. Um Like, talk about risking something. Yeah. Okay, right? Like, that woman risks something. So, I feel like At a time like this, freedom, people's freedom, is not coming from the government. It's coming from other people, Mm -hmm. right? And that in itself, to me, is a form of religion.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Like That's like putting faith in another person, saying, the law doesn't make sense, right? It's not about justice. It's not about morality. So therefore, I'm going to go break that law.
1: And that frees somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um. So I kind of, I kind of keep thinking about the idea of the body and embodiment, because you're right. Because it's the bodies that are being locked up. It's like your physical person, and, as, and like with the kind of Catholic background where everything that is worldly, which is the body, is bad, and then coming into an environment where you like yourself is always at risk in the U S like your body is always at risk in the U S because you're undocumented. And I'm just wondering if like, and, and it just seems also like the body needs to make space. Like we as allies or we as other forms of hope need mm-hmm. to risk our own selves, our own bodies um, in order to, in order to, in order to create mm-hmm. a safer space for everyone. And I I mean, like, have you thought about it that way? Does that make sense at all? Well, it's so interesting because
2: I never really, I did something I haven't done before in the past couple of months, which is I had a physical exam. I'm 38 years old and I've never had a physical. I don't remember ever meeting with a doctor to really look at my entire body.
1: Can I ask a naive question? Yeah. As Being undocumented,
0: can you get health insurance? I have to
2: buy it. Yeah, so okay. So, even though I started to find American.
0: Mm-hmm. Even though you're a job creator. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I, have to,
2: I have to buy my own private health insurance. Okay. So, I have insurance and I'm dealing with health issues. And for the first time, the doctor says, We really need to do an entire analysis of your body. You know, everything. So, testing everything. Mm-hmm. And I've never had that before. Mm-hmm. Because, frankly, what was the point? I was like, well, I feel disconnected from my body. Right, yeah. Right? Like, I don't, like, you know, like, that's why nature was not my thing. That's why, you know, even, like, in our organization, we have have a lot of people on our team who are really, you know, big about climate change and, like, and this is kind of a running joke because a couple years ago or something like that, I made a comment about I'm too depressed to be an environmentalist. Like, I'm not. (laughs) Like, that seems too like You all are worried about what's going to happen in 50 years. I'm worried about, like, am I going to be here next year?
1: Yeah. Like, meaning, I
2: don't – you're worrying about the environment. Like, that's an outside thing. I can't deal with my inside. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's this kind of physical severance. And for me, I have to say, from a creative standpoint and from from a personal standpoint, I'm really fascinated and disturbed by, like, what are we doing to people's psyche? Mm
1: -hmm. Like,
2: what – like this, this disembodied this and this feeling of disconnection, this severance, right? What happens when you live in a place and the place doesn't recognize you and doesn't see you and doesn't give you what it doesn't give you the oxygen you need to live?
0: Yeah, right. So then
2: how do you then separate yourself from it? Mm-hmm. And then, but then how do you live?
0: And that, uh, I, like, if and the yeah, last I know we're running out of time here, but the last question I would like to ask you, it has to do exactly with that. You talked about running and kind of being disconnected from your body. And I would imagine that that is a feeling that most undocumented people have right now. The toll that that takes on mental health on a population that has huge difficulties getting access to mental health care. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that?
2: Well, I mean, I think we're, I mean, look, every community right now is, I actually think if there's one thing that connects every American from all identities and all backgrounds Mm -hmm. is that we are all collectively having a mental health crisis in this Mm -hmm. country. And, but you're also dealing with the reality that you have a lot of people coming from communities in which, go back to God, you just swallow bitterness. Yeah, you don't talk about it, right? God died, of, you know. Jesus died on some cross for your sin,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Like, it's not—it's not something we articulate. Even when I was a kid, I remember one of the earliest things I was obsessed with was Frasier, and because I had never seen people talk about like psych, like you know, like therapy, mental, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, what are they doing? and I remember thinking, what a privilege. I mean, back then that wasn't the word, but like do they not have real things to deal with so they're creating things?
1: <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Are they creating yeah.
2: problems that aren't really there? Because, you know, uh, that uh, that way I was dealing with the gay thing, I was dealing with the undocumented thing, I'm dealing with my family, I'm dealing with, like, real things. Yeah. And then you watch Frazier and you're like, so what's the problem here? <laughs> right? And so, like, I so I saw, I know this, but again, the power of media. I saw therapy from that very superficial kind of way. I just was seeing um, Big Little Lies. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The therapist in that show. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's a therapist.
1: Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm.
2: Like, the kind of presentness and just like actual mental and emotional interrogation that she was doing. Um, Talk about being a witness. You know, Mm -hmm. she was being a witness in a very dangerous way, but in a very important way. Yeah. I think there was no other way but to do what she did. Right? Like, yeah. what are you
1: supposed to do? Right. Um, so... Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, I've read the book. Okay. I haven't seen the show, but I've read the book. Yeah. Seen the show. No, okay. I'm going I to. I actually, answer.
2: like... I actually... I think it might... It must be the first series that I just completely watched on my phone. Really? I just was like... Once I saw the first episode... You were I was I, I was... I had the whole thing. I, like, went through the whole thing. And again, as a, as a filmmaker, too, I was just... I was fascinated by... Um the construction of that show mm-hmm. and how psychological
0: it was mm-hmm. the author not, she she's so good at grasping see, I that read the book. I should but read the she book. is it's it's it, she gets personal relationships and like that sort of interpersonal yeah. it was nature so so psychological did
1: you did you watch season 1 or season 2 season 1 okay season, season 2 is not quite not quite the same i thought what do you think um i didn't i, I agree not the same and and the ending eh. yeah but the talking about like the psychological element the mom mm-hmm. the like the grandma who comes the in character. oh my god amazing and the way that the way that so she's this is a huge spoiler um, but she's the mom of the rapist the guy who yeah, dies the guy who dies and she's so apologetic for him like oh. she's mm-hmm. and like you know victim blaming and doing all the stuff and, and and it makes sense for like how somebody in that generation might certainly act. Like, protecting right. their child, but also, like, growing up in a totally different understanding of what sex and, and how you rave might, and, and, and how power, you And how empower. you might raise a rapist. And how you might... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, That should
2: have been a title for this for the yeah. show. I was just like... You know, I'm not married. I'm not... Like, I was fascinated. I just thought... And the performances were just so... And to see so many different women, mm-hmm. I thought, and, like, the psychology of, like, how... They dealt with different sorts of mm-hmm. abuse. Yeah. Um, it was fascinating.
1: And do and and I think that they, they did it in a really good way in which it didn't like take away their agency or their power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like they still maintained it, but they were also clearly in some like subjugated mm-hmm, roles mm-hmm. in some of
0: their lives. Anyways, this is way off topic. <laughs> <laughs> but a fun aside! Um, it has been amazing talking to you yes. and just chatting about pop culture. I would like to for us to close by um, just saying that your book is amazing, oh, uh, dear me America. Too. I think everybody should read it. Um, it's such a poignant uh, story about your own life and also. Very important for our times. Can you um, maybe just tell people a little bit about the book and oh. where they can get it?
2: So you can get it anywhere. <laughs> Apparently, it's at airports, which I love because yep. you know we're not supposed to be flying. I love to go to the airports. Um, <laughs> so for me, the book is actually this question of psychological interrogation. Mm-hmm. I wrote the book. The only, number one question I had was that why am I so depressed and why am I so messed up? Mm. And then the book kind of answers it. Okay. So I really wanted to understand our condition. Beyond the politics and the policies, and put it in a much more psychological frame framework. Mm-hmm. And now that I've been, you know, now that colleges have assigned the book, and I get to talk to the kids and the students about the book, it's been it's been so rewarding because I'm like, oh my god, they totally got what I'm doing. They totally got what I'm trying trying to do. I cannot think of a more rewarding thing for a writer than like yeah. have people like yeah. process what you wrote and like oh, and to create space for them to enter it, and so then it's theirs,
0: right? Um, yeah it's awesome that's amazing well we will yeah. certainly post links on social media Jose Antonio thank Vargas you. thank you so thank much thank you for joining so us. much Jeez. yes and now you are an honorary <laughs> bitch yes <laughs> thank you so right. much thank you